And I'm fucking livid that we are stuck in the timeline where Alex Jones is right. Kind of works. Oh no! Why aren't the Amish afraid of of COVID? Because they don't have TVs. Instead, democracy is a system that reinforces authoritarian ideals. I hope I don't get canceled. Being a victim of a tragedy doesn't make you an expert in public policy. But I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of (laughs) shit. Remember, they lost the Afghan war 10 years ago. (laughs) You brought a freaking guillotine. I said, you don't get to tell us no. We're in the state health department. And I said, hell no. It wasn't making Christianity better. It was making rock worse. Uh, what the fuck do you have on your face, Olivia? You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies and raise them to not be stupid. I remember thinking, man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, shit posters, and people of the internet, thank you for tuning in to another episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. As always, I'm your host, Justin. Before we get started, just remember, whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on the air over at LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with your friends. And if you enjoy the content that we're putting out, you can join the production team by visiting patreon.com slash o'donnell for liberty again that's patreon.com slash o'donnell the number four liberty if you want to keep in touch between shows follow me on social media and join our community discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time all these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to as well as on o'donnell for liberty.com so check the description for that link and make sure you check it out First and foremost, a shout out to snackswag.com, where you can get all your favorite Liberty merch, including some awesome new hoodies in the collection, just in time for colder weather to start creeping in for winter this year. So make sure you head over to snackswag.com to pick up your merch today. Now, tonight we're going to be talking a fascinating and interesting subject, something uh, that's come near and dear to politics in my local sphere, and something that is becoming more and more relevant as we go and really heightening the national discussion around the future of American politics. Um, we're going to take questions. We're going to make sh- so make sure you hit the like button, leave some comments, and tell us what you think in the chat. We're just waiting for Lewis to pop back in, but tonight's guest, someone I'm super excited for you guys to hear from, someone who I might not agree with politically, who we might be on different sides of major political issues, but he's someone out there doing the work, doing great work, leading the Cal Exit movement, yes, California proposition, ran for governor uh, in California, possibly running for governor again, secessionist extraordinaire. Uh, Louis Marinelli, he just popped out of the studio. We're just going to wait for him to pop back in. But in the meantime, pop in, comment. You guys are having secession movements all over the country. Let us know what your favorite secession movement is. What are you doing to help with your secession movement? Are you in favor of secession? Are you opposed to secession? Is your state have a cultural movement? Does your state have a cultural identity. States like California and states like Texas started out as independent republics and independent countries and then became states in the Union. They were never territories. They were just the Republic of California and the Republic of Texas became states from being independent countries. But we also have a thriving movement for independence here in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire independence movement, which is picking up steam, it's getting off the ground, it is really, really invigorating people with how they're making their push. They gave a big uh, big presentation at Porkfest this year. They have been campaigning. You have the New Hampshire Institute of Independence, which is a nonprofit to campaign for them. A state representative in New Hampshire submitted a bill for New Hampshire to secede from the union. And another state representative in New Hampshire submitted a bill to encourage California to leave the union. These things may not be in conflict as much as they seem they are. What better route for secession to happen than the simultaneous balkanization of all of North America? That's what I want to ask. But not everyone wants to leave. Lately, we have seen 
Hollywood actress and comedian Sarah Silverman coming out in favor of secession, her national divorce, uh, where she wants to see the states break up on lines of political ideology and vaccination. It's mind-blowing when you really do think about it. That vaccination could be the cause of why somebody wants to leave the union. But Sarah Silverman's not an avowed secessionist. She's just a comedian and a Hollywood actress. So what does she actually know about the logistics of how it would work and how it happened? We don't know. But somebody who does, somebody who's run for governor of California on the platform of seceding from the union, Louis Marinelli. Louis, thank you for joining us tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for the invitation to be a part of the show. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm excited to have you. I had Alu Axelman on a few weeks ago, um, and we didn't even talk secession when I had him on. He helps run a lot of the New Hampshire independence movement, um, but I had him to talk on his experience moving from New York to New Hampshire, and I want to have him back on in the future to talk about how he now thinks New Hampshire should be an independent country. But you're a Californian living in Russia, who thinks California should be an independent country. What's your story? How did you get to where you are and like what brought you down the path of becoming a secessionist and working politically towards secession? Well, I think really what it came down to was when I came, when I actually, I say that I immigrated to California because I was actually born in New York and I moved to California when I was younger uh, and when I moved to California when I was younger, I realized that the government of California is much more effective and efficient at uh, doing things and serving the people of California than the federal government is for the United States. And so I started to really see this stark difference between how good the federal government works for the United States and how dysfunctional it is, I guess, and how functional, comparatively speaking, the government in Sacramento is. Now, that's not to say that I'm a cheerleader of Sacramento, well, of course. Nobody could really be a cheerleader of Sacramento, I don't think. Uh, but that's that just really kind of paints the picture of how dysfunctional the federal system is, that nothing can get done. There's complete gridlock. At least things mm -hmm. get done in California. Even if you disagree with what they are doing, things get done to some extent. And so I started to see that kind of stark difference there. And then I also started to see how that stark difference really impacted the people of California. Because on the one side of the border, we have a federal government that's like using our federal tax dollars in, in, in ways that the people of California wouldn't support, wouldn't like them to be used. We're having the federal government redistribute our taxes to other states in the union. Uh, so we're subsidizing a lot of our states in the union at our expense. And then the other side of the uh, border in California, we have a government that's trying to do things to expand access to healthcare, expand uh, you know rights for the minority groups and, and disenfranchised voters and for uh, undocumented immigrants and so on and so forth. So I really saw that stark difference. And I was like, well, California, I just kind of moved here, but this place seems to be, you know, better at governing California than the United States is. Like, I, I know that the, the folks in Texas like to say that the best people to govern Texas are Texans. And so I really Absolutely. came to understand that the best people to govern California are Californians. And then you start to look into it a little bit and you start to see things like, well, wait a minute. Everything that we, I just said and compounds together with the idea that California is the fifth largest economy in the world. We have 40 million people. We have resources, natural resources, minerals, and other natural resources. We have seaports. We have uh, foreign investments. So all of those things all make it possible, actually, to become an independent country. So those two, I guess those are the two elements that really go together. The fact that the government works better than the federal side of the border, and that the fact that California actually has the capacity to be an independent country. Yeah, the capacity is the thing that's really mind-blowing, and a lot of people don't think that rationally it's, oh uh, states can't secede they can't be an independent country they won't be able to survive without the federal government they're not big enough they're not don't have enough resources and you look at it it's like okay like san marino is an independent country Liechtenstein's an independent country um the vatican city is an independent country and the wealthiest country on earth and yeah. it's the size of a few square city a few city square blocks like size doesn't necessarily relate to a country's ability to function and a nation's ability to function resources absolutely have something to do with it um the people absolutely have something to do with it 
But there are competing movements in California, especially. Uh, from what I've seen, like the Texas independence movement and the secession movement in Texas is everybody's really on board with Texas seceding. And I've seen some really varying takes in the Californian one where it seems like everybody's in favor of California seceding, but has a different vision for how it does. Some people, it's just the Bay Area and L.A. split off and form their own country. Some people, it splits into three different countries. Uh, some people, it stays a state. It stays part of the U.S., but splits into six new states. Um, uh -huh. And I saw a proposal yesterday um, that came out with the ha hashtag CalExit on Twitter, which was California becoming a new country and seeding a lot of the desert and a lot of uh, land in what is currently California to Native Americans as a second separate country. And it, it's fascinating that California is big enough and California is diverse enough that all of these plans have merit and could all theoretically succeed. Yeah, definitely. I, I do I do know and recognize that the people of Texas have long held a kind of civic pride in Texas and the borders of Texas and the flag of Texas and Texas history. <laughs> California, I think, has a lot of that uh, to some extent, but not in the same way. I think that Californians are proud to be Californians. I know that uh, our former governor, Jerry Brown, used to say that California has a golden state of mind. It's a California golden state of mind. It's a, it's a kind of a makes us our own separate nation because we have our own mentality. We have our own culture. But I don't think it's so much bound by a particular set of borders that go back to you know hundreds of years ago that people are proud of California because the borders that go through the forest and the Sierra Nevadas, for example. So I, I, I do have I do see those different movements around California, but I would point out that some of those that you pointed out are not so much Calex. Uh, some of them are, for example, like the uh, Timothy Draper and Silicon Valley's idea to break California up into six states. That's not a Calex thing. That's kind of like uh, let's just break up California into six states because it would give you know Silicon Valley its own two senators, so they can <laughs> you know take take control of the world that way. So there's another movement out there called I think it's called New California, which is an idea of uh, you know, making a, a 51st state out of half of the state of California or something to that effect. Uh, but the, really the only Calix movement out there is something to do with making California an independent country. And when we were doing this back a couple of years ago, what we wanted to do was to, to give back, and we still want to, to some extent, open the conversation about giving back some of the land that was taken by the Americans to the native uh, California population. And so that's when we came up with the idea that, well, what if we gave them almost half the state and, right. you know, let them govern it as they wanted to govern it and return it to them so they could take care of it? Because a lot of people believe that if we return the land back to the native population, that they would do a better job of taking care of that land. So that's why we decided to, you know, maybe focus on those forests, and those mountains, the most beautiful parts of California, maybe return those back to the native people and allow them to be the rightful owners of those properties as they were before the American settlers came illegally without visas to California and settled and took over the state militarily. Right. Now, AJ Olding did ask Andrew Olding in chat. He had a question uh, early on. Um, if the Cal exit movement and yes, California still opposed the movement for the state of Jefferson, um, because I know that's been a, a, that's been a movement I've been aware of for a long time where people in Oregon and Northern California, the more conservative and Republican part have talked about splitting and forming a state of Jefferson. That's more aligned politically with how they feel because a lot of people in Northern California feel that Sacramento doesn't govern them the way they want to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think that we have some sympathy for them. I understand that their flag has two X's on it because they feel they've been double crossed by Sacramento. And so we empathize with that. We understand that Sacramento is, like I said in the beginning, we're not a big cheerleader of Sacramento. So we like to make a, you know, differentiate standing up and being a cheerleader for California's ability to be an independent country does not mean that we believe that Sacramento in its current form and the leaders in Sacramento should be the ones leading that that independent country. Uh, but we still think that California itself and the people of California themselves deserve independence and it can have the capacity to be an independent country. But when it comes to Jefferson, to answer the question, I, I don't think that there's a strong opposition to that idea. I think that, you know, in, in order for us to maintain our value system, which is really big, I mean, our values of Calix is really based upon self-determination, right? And so if the people of the counties of Jefferson, they wanted to exercise the right of self-determination, hold a vote that said that they want to, for example, remain in the United States, I personally wouldn't be opposed to that because I don't see the point in saying, well, California deserves the right to secede from the union because of self-determination, right? But no, Shasta County has to come with us, 
even if they don't want to. Right. Well, that really that that's really the crux of this whole thing is like the United States, the, the nation of the United States of America was formed by re- rebellion, revolution, and treason, where people revolted against the crown, declared their independence, and decided they mm-hmm. were going to govern themselves. Mm-hmm. The very basis of the foundation of this country is on the reality that secession is inherent right of a group of people to determine their own governance and determine their own future. So those who oppose the secession movement today on the grounds of we fought to keep this country together, I'm like, I don't, don't, I don't think you understand what you fought for. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Do a lot of them. Yeah, um, so we would be open to the idea if Jefferson, if they wanted to organize, and they've had votes on this in the past, by the way, and if Galaxy was about to happen, I think it would be right for us to hold some kind of uh, a vote or referendum and see which counties wanted to stay in the union or perhaps mm-hmm. join with Nevada or Oregon or create a, the new state of Jefferson. And they would, for example, replace California, take California's star on the American flag and <laughs> California can leave and then they can remain and, and everyone's happy. I think that's the best way to do it when it comes to. You know, the principle of voluntary association, I think, is an important part of any kind of secession movement. If we're going to secede from the unit based on the ideals of voluntary association, self-government, and uh, the right of self-determination, then we ought to give our own people in California the right to remain if they want to. Don't know why they would necessarily, but if that's what they want to, then they should be able to remain in the United States. Yeah, they they absolutely should. Um, But, I mean, hear me out here. My stepfather is a tried and true conservative uh, Republican American. He lives in Massachusetts and hates it and freaking hates the government in Boston, still hates the government in D.C. But he's a nationalist. He voted for Trump. He supported Trump. He supported Bush. He supported Reagan, um, opposed Clinton, opposed Obama, just on the party lines that were. But he's always been a nationalist, always been a patriot, always been an American first type of guy. And it was recently, only the past year or so, where he told me, he's like, I think we're heading towards the complete balkanization of North America. And I look at something like CalExit. And CalExit's an independence movement that has legs, that's moving. And it stands a chance. Um, Alu Axelman chat. Right on. Hashtag New Hampshire exit. And I'm right there with Alu and, uh, about New Hampshire exit. It's just I don't think New Hampshire declaring its independence and seceding would have quite the impact on the global scale as California would. Because California is set up, like you said, immediately. You have the population. You have the resources. You have the structures in place to be a standalone government as you go. And already one of the top 10 export economies in the world. I think it would cause a cascading effect where if California were to declare its independence and there was a government in D.C. that was not opposed to it and didn't put up a fight against it, that you'd immediately see Texas gone, New Hampshire gone, Alaska gone, Hawaii gone, and states just start dropping off one after another to the point where you it would be a peace, hopefully, ideally peaceful balkanization of North America. I totally agree that that's completely possible when it comes to the fact that it could be peaceful because this is something I think that many people in the United States want, but there's some roadblocks for them expressing their support. First of all, many people believe that it's unconstitutional or somehow illegal, and so therefore they're not going to come out and publicly support something that they think is unconstitutional because therefore it's impossible. But it's not mm-hmm. right because the Constitution doesn't say anything about secession in the first place so it doesn't say for example that it's uh, no state shall secede from the union right there's no such text there's also no such text to say that states may secede from the union so the only uh you know groundwork we have for that is texas versus white which the media goes out and tells people that it says that you know they decided in 1869 that states can't secede from the union but that's also not true that's not the whole story the full the more full story is that states can't secede from the union unilaterally right and so, you know, what we like to talk about at Calix is the idea of the consent of the states, where the Congress doesn't play a role, the president doesn't play a role, the constitutional amendment process doesn't play a role, because the Supreme Court ruled in Texas versus White, if we take that ruling, uh, that the states can secede with the consent of the states. It doesn't say with the consent of Congress. They could have written the word mm-hmm. Congress. They could have written the word through constitutional amendment. They didn't do that. They said the consent of the states. And so we take the position that perhaps there could be 25 or 26 state legislatures that could pass a resolution that says California can secede from the union if it wants. And then with those 25, 26 uh, state legislature resolutions, we would have 
what I would say, the consent of the majority of the states for California to secede. Then we would have to have in California our own referendum to confirm that that's what the people of California want. And then those two things combined, combined, I believe, on the international stage would give us the legitimacy to declare independence. And it would be very difficult for the American government to stand up again and say, no, you can't do that. Well, they're going around the world talking about human rights, freedom, democracy, et cetera. Now, as it comes to the question about you were talking about whether or not it could be a, some kind of domino effect, I think that it could to some extent, but it doesn't have to be. But that would right. be a decision that the other states would have to make for themselves. And I, I think it really comes down to what I was saying before about this bandwagon thing. I think that a lot of people in the country would love a national divorce or would love for their states to see, you know, but, you know, they want other people to kind of stand up and do it first and for make that conversation safe. And then they'll kind of jump on the bandwagon once it gets going. Uh, but nobody really wants to go out there except for people like me or people like my colleague Marcus Ruiz Evans or the other supporters of CalExit and Texas who want to go out there and be the first one saying, let's secede from the union, right? Looks like we're going right. to associate ourselves with the civil war. We're going to associate ourselves with all the negativity that comes with secession and so on and so forth uh so we'll do it we'll stand out there it started out a couple years ago with marcus and i holding a california flag in the middle of the road in long beach california and sacramento just the two of us with a with a tent and a dream and now it's a worldwide known campaign for california independence and the texans have the same thing going on new hampshire has something going on there's things in alaska the things in hawaii so certainly there are these sentiments out there across the country and so it really just takes a couple of brave, courageous people to stand up and say, this is what can be done. This is how we can do it. And then other people will follow once we set that precedent. And one precedent could lead to others, as you're saying. Yeah. So, I mean, the constitutional argument and the constitutional constitutionality argument really falls flat with uh, people like me and people who share my politics and a lot of people in the New Hampshire independence movement uh, because I'm an anarchist and the New Hampshire independence movement is mostly populated by libertarians and conservative libertarians, con more libertarian leading conservatives and Republicans who are pushing for the New Hampshire independence movement. And people like me are always sitting there quoting Lysander Spooner and the constitution of no authority. It's like either the constitution has authorized the suppressive government that we have, or it has been powerless to stop it. Either way, it's a moot and meaningless point. And if we're voting to secede from the union, we're voting to reject the authority of the Constitution anyways. My personal preference, and this might be the pie in the sky thing, I understand why a lot of people say there is some benefit to being part of a country that is a global superpower, that being part of a country that 50 states working together create in essentially a trade block that's one of the largest economies in the world and can dictate terms in its favor when it comes to international trade and international relations. I don't necessarily think a single country needs to exist for that to happen. I look at things like the European Union, like the African Union, where you have independent countries that are banding together in economic trade blocks, opening up their own borders between themselves, but still governing themselves. Well, the European Union is a little bit more heavy-handed than the African Union or Southeast Asian economic unions. But the, the independent countries still largely self-govern themselves and only join together for economic benefit. I wonder how much better and less conflicted of a world we'd live in had the Articles of Confederation never been replaced with the Constitution of the first place. If it would have taken the unanimous consent of every state in the Union to declare war, and the federal government was just a pittance of people in Washington that's uh, arranged for international trade treaties. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of... Uh, discussions that could be had about those, you know, alternate history, what if questions. It's yeah. an interesting topic. Um, I was just speaking the other day with some friends about what would have happened if, uh, you know, you know, the Ottoman Empire had survived after the wars and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> so, for example, so there's a lot of interesting things. But I, I wanted to actually clarify something because you were talking uh, a minute ago about, you know, the idea that, you know, the states should remain together because there's some benefit in being a part of a single country that has this clout around the world to kind of affect things. And I was wondering, uh, I mean, I assume you're speaking about the United States, but I wasn't quite sure because it doesn't seem that the United States has that clout. It could. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so I, I think the United States could if the United States have that even that benefit yeah. right now. Uh, so... <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like maybe I just, I just say that as someone who's you know who's lived in Russia, for example, and so whenever the United right. States does something to kind of 
change Russia's behavior as if it's a child, <laughs> Russia does the same thing back to the United States and there's no progress made. And so right. I don't think the United States has that much cloud around the world So for people to say, well, we should stay in the Union because we have this international cloud that we can affect things that we want to because the United States doesn't really you know, affect the world very much anymore anyway, except for with its bombs and drones. You're absolutely right. And the bombs and drones are a big thing. And I'm, I'm an isolationist. I do not believe in foreign intervention or war and military adventurism. I think a large part, a hugely massively significant part of every global conflict and every issue in the world since the fall of the Soviet Union has been due to American exceptionalism and American foreign intervention and American foreign policy. Those are absolutely terrible things, and they have led to a lot of strife, suffering, and like just pain for billions of people around the world. And one of the big pushes for me to support secession is that I hate the fact that my tax dollars go to support that. Against my will. I hate the fact that a portion of my paycheck, every paycheck, goes to pay for a drone program that's bombing children in the Middle East against my who have never done anything to me. Yeah. Um, but I think the weight and the merit to the argument of the, the safety in numbers argument and the strength in numbers argument comes to more of a protection thing and a trade negotiation thing. And I think if if we were to see the balkanization of North America, but maybe the reforming, maybe it's no longer the United States of America, but maybe just a North American economic bloc where 50 independent states band together to negotiate open and free trade between themselves. So you call it the American Union. Yeah, something like the American Union where, screw it, we'll take half of Canada too. <laughs> um, but to negotiate open and free trade between themselves and to band together like solely for the purpose of defense. Like say the United States does break up. Russia doesn't. Russia's now the big boy on the block. Now it's Russia and China and nobody else. What's to stop if Russia and China decide to flex their power? Well, maybe those 50 independent small states banding together to form a single superpower but not in the guise of a government, in the guise of an alliance and a union that's geared towards respecting the individual sovereignty of each individual state and only banding together when necessary for the defense of their own sovereignty. Yeah, I generally agree with that. Although I would point out that Russia, for example, is a country that's facing population decline and also as an economy is largely based upon fossil fuels, which by many accounts may not be the future of our planet. And so they're kind of uh, in a tough spot right now in terms of trying to be a superpower in the world. Certainly they're vying for some influence around the world, but the fact that they're trying to vie for that influence and they really try to try to ex exert themselves to try to be that player kind of demonstrates the fact that they are not that player right now. And with their demographic problem in Russia, people are leaving Russia. There's you know poverty in Russia to the extent where people can't afford to have more than one child. Uh, buy homes and things of that nature. It's not really much for, uh, you know, growing of an economy. The, you know, the extension of uh, Vladimir Putin's rule beyond 2024 will bring potential political unrest into this society. So I'm not really sure. I can't speak about China because I don't really know much about China at all. Right. But uh, as, as far as Russia goes, I, I certainly think that there are some, at least a debate to be held about whether or not they qualify or will qualify as a, a superpower if the United States were to break up. But the point, uh, the thing I really wanted to bring up was, you know, I would like to bring up the idea of Czechoslovakia because Czechoslovakia was one country they divided mm -hmm. through what's called the Velvet Divorce. Today, they're neighboring countries in Europe. They have great relationships with each other. When the president or prime minister of one country gets elected, they traditionally go to the other country first as a, as a custom. And they have a mutual defense agreement. And so there's nothing to say that, right. you know, because the United States goes through a divorce, California and Texas, for example, won't maintain good relations. California and Texas won't maintain commerce and trade with one another and won't even have a mutual defense agreement. They can totally do that. In fact, I think it's more likely that we would simply because of the fact that the liberal progressives in California wouldn't be interfering in the domestic affairs of the people of Texas and the conservatives in Texas won't be interfering with the domestic Absolutely. affairs of the people of California. And then we can get out of each other's hair, get out of this dysfunctional household, then we can actually have cordial relations with one another. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's what I was trying to hammer at. That's what I was trying to get to. Absolutely. Is that just because we divorce, just because we break up doesn't mean we can't like 
still band together when it counts and where it helps us. Yeah, um, married we, couples often have uh, <laughs> better relationships when they get divorced too, because they're just simply out of each other's business and, and they can just, you know, let the animosity and the, and the emotions calm down. And then you can have a cordial relationship with one. And I think that that analogy could be used for the states as well. Yeah. So we have an open question from Aaron in the chat. Uh, wouldn't the states who secede not only make themselves more vulnerable, but the U.S. as a whole to the jointed efforts of the CCP and cartels to cause massive amounts of drug overdose? So I think we just covered this. There is still the potential for the states to band together for their own defense and for their own benefit when necessary as independent sovereign states. Um, China, who knows? China just announced they're demonstrating super uh, hypersonic warheads, and they're they're trying to make themselves the biggest superpower they can. But nobody actually knows what their end goal is. And I do think it would be important that independent states band together to defend themselves because of the threat of something possible from the Communist Party of China. The cartels, though, that's a whole other issue. Mexican drug cartels were created by the United States federal government to launder money by selling drugs to poor people in the United States to fund black operations against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. If you didn't have the United States federal government funding and creating cartels, we wouldn't have the war on drugs and we wouldn't have the issues we have today. And even if you want to tackle the drug war, I think taking the federal government out of it and letting each independent state figure out its own approach to how to deal with things, what to legalize, what to regulate, what to treat, and what to incarcerate, you'd get different, as Gary Johnson put it, I hate giving credit to Gary Johnson, but you'd get 50 laboratories of innovation, and you'd get a true competitive market in how to deal with the crisis and deal with the problem, and the best result would float to the top. So, and I can guarantee you, California and Texas would both take wildly different approaches to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So about China, though, I had said a couple of moments ago that I don't yeah. really know much about China, which is true, and I'm not an expert on China. But what I do know about China is that they're very organized the uh, planners for the future. The Chinese government is really organized planners for the future. They have like a, a, a we're trying to, you know pass budget resolutions in Congress that allow us to pay for the government for the next 50 days. Uh, and so when it comes to that point, I mean, I think it would be a bad thing if the United States, for China anyway, a bad thing if the United States were to break up, because then kind of like what you were saying, China all of a sudden has 50 countries to deal with in North America that are going to take different approaches to China. And some of them are inevitably going to take a hardline approach on human rights issues or climate or climate change issues in China and try to influence and try to get the Chinese to, to adopt uh, some human rights amendments in their legislation and laws and practices and also for uh, climate change issues. And so I think that, you know, right now China has a generally predictable adversary in the United States. And I don't know how it benefits them all of a sudden to have, you know, let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. And now you have 49 new countries that are going to take on different approaches and they're not going to know what to do and, and where their allegiances are, what their policies are, what their preferences are, what their uh, priorities are. And so I think that yeah. in China's interest for the United States to remain together, if only for the oh, no. I, I think fact that they have I, a predictable adversary. I I think the biggest thing keeping the yeah the biggest thing keeping China afloat right now the 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 biggest financial incentive keeping China afloat is the fact that they own so much debt from varying countries around the world. But a large chunk of China's bankroll is owned federal treasury bonds from the United States federal debt. Um, if the United States were to simply dissolve. And default on that debt as 50 new independent countries each say they're not responsible for D.C.'s failure. It, it would cut off a significant portion of the lifeline of Ch the Chinese military's funding and the Chinese Communist Party's funding. And then China, as Lewis said, would have to figure out on the fly how to deal with 
instead of one state department that they've had 60 years to work out a relationship with, 50 state departments, all of which have wildly different opinions on how things should go. So, yeah, so Aaron in chat, you agree with the legalization, but CCP has been caught altering manufacturing medication to be toxic if consumed. Would divorcing from the union make us more vulnerable to this? I don't think so. I think divorcing from the union takes the federal government out of the regulation of things like drugs, like medicine, and allows the states to set up their own safety protocols to their own standards, to their own comfort levels. Um, because you look at like you look at any federal government agency, and it's just how much money is wasted. And the big one I usually like to harp on, outside of a secessionist argument, outside of the national divorce argument, I like to talk a lot about destroying and dismantling the Department of Education. Because the Department of Education, to me, is the perfect example of how the federal government fails at governing. For every dollar in tax money that a state sends to the Department of Education, they get 93 cents back. But they have to spend 60 of those cents complying with Department of, Regula Department of Education regulations to even have access to the other 30 cents. How much better funded and run would your state's education program be if it just kept that money and let parents and teachers at the most local level decide how to raise and teach their children? Yeah, I, I wouldn't speak directly about the Department of Education. I'll defer to you on that as you're yeah. more involved in federal politics, I can see by your banners in the background. But uh, I would say that you're generally accurate in the point that what we like to say at the Calix campaign is that California is a donor state is losing 10, sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars every year in these, uh, these federal subsidies to other states that pay less than the federal funding uh, taxes that they get in federal funding. California receives generally less than that. Now, there's some years where California gets more, so it goes up and down. But the general uh, trend is that California pays more in federal taxes than it receives in federal funding. And so the idea of Calix is that we could take our federal taxes. They're not going to stop paying federal taxes, so to speak. We're just going to stop paying them to the IRS and that they would instead go to the California Franchise Tax Board, which would then be your new federal tax, so to speak. So the idea of Calix is really about keeping your taxes in California, all of them, and then using them in the way that's best serving the people of California. And we can do that by improving healthcare, education, infrastructure development, water projects, and so on and so forth. Because that money doesn't leave California to go to Alabama, doesn't leave California to go to Tennessee, it stays in California, and it's not redistributed by the IRS to the other states. So therefore, we can use it for those projects in California while not increasing taxes. Now, that's one of the things that's really important about Calix is because, because we keep those taxes in California, we are not going to have to increase any taxes to pay for these new products. We're just keeping our own money in California. And in fact, there might even be a possibility to reduce taxes because a lot of the taxes and fees that Californians pay for are kind of making up that difference of the money that we lose to those other states. Right. So when we pay a dollar out to the federal government, we get back sometimes 70 cents. Well, where does that 30 cents go? Well, sometimes we have to you know, borrow money for that or we have to you know, create a new fee or a new tax on something to make up for that difference. So we're charging a tax on our own people for services that are being provided in other states. Yeah, and it's absolutely mind-blowing that people don't realize that. Uh, like, I, I often say, I, I've wondered how many people would oppose the federal income tax just on principle if they got an itemized bill to see where every dime of their taxes went. Like, yeah. if somebody in Manchester, New Hampshire gets our itemized bill for our taxes and said, okay, I, for every dollar, four cents got spent on New Hampshire, one of those cents got sent on my city. Uh, everything else is like, okay, Tennessee, Israel, Iraq, Afghanistan. Like, if people got an itemized bill to see where their money was wasted, how their money is wasted, I think they'd be more invested in keeping it home, keeping it local, and keeping it to themselves. Exactly. And that even applies to things like defense, because people say, for example, and we were talking about this earlier, you know, what about staying together as a country so that we can have mutual defense? Well, if we talk about defense, Californians pay about 13% of the federal government's budget every year. Well, 13% of the defense budget is about 80, 90 billion dollars a year. Well, if you look at the average country around the world, how much they spend on defense every year, it's about 26, 30 billion dollars a year. 
for the average country, that including countries like Israel, which are in a war zone, surrounded by countries that would like to destroy them, as Iran says, wipe them off the map, so to speak. And so they spend about $30 billion a year on defense. Australia spends about $30 billion a year on defense. The United States spends over $700 billion, which is more than like the next 10 countries combined. And so if 32. California was an independent country, as the fifth largest economy in the world, we wouldn't need to spend $80, $90 billion a year on defense. We could spend, let's say, even $30 billion a year on defense, have a globally, an average global defense like every other country in the world, be adequate for our defense in North America, and then that frees up $60, $70 billion a year, or, or $50, $60, $70 billion a year, depending on what year it is, for other projects. Those that, that defense budget money would be redistributed to education, like we were talking about, for example, or healthcare or infrastructure, because we're not spending... $80 billion a year in defense. We're spending $30 billion a year in defense for defending California, a country that's, for example, 40 times smaller than Russia, but pays $10 billion more per year for its defense under the United right. States. Yeah, it's uh, the last time I saw the statistic, and the last time I looked it up, it was the United States spends more on defense than the next 42 countries combined. 41 of whom are NATO allies, uh, the one oddball being China. And so, like, it's absolutely asinine. And a lot of the reason the United States spends so much on national defense is foreign intervention, foreign aid, uh, foreign military assistance, obligations to NATO and the United Nations, things that the individual states never agreed to, that the individual people never agreed to, bureaucrats in D.C. agreed to, and the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. The United States, per international law, is obligated to be the police of international oceans and to respond to all, and protect all shipping and trade routes from piracy. No other country has an obligation to protect their own trade routes. It's the responsibility of the United States per the UN. So not only as individual states have we deferred our sovereignty to D.C., D.C. has further deferred our sovereignty to an unelected body of international bureaucrats that meets in New York City. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of waste there, and I totally agree that, you know, I think the only thing that you may have left out, which you might have touched upon, is the fact that, well, why do we need so much defense in the first place? It may be because we're causing off. our own problems around the world that making right. people want to attack the United States. And so if we didn't have a history of imperialism and, and drones and bombs, as we were talking about, then maybe we would have fewer enemies. We wouldn't feel the need to have to defend ourselves so highly. Yeah, and it's absolutely asinine to even think. And let's be perfectly honest. If we break up tomorrow, I don't think states like California or Texas are going to have a problem defending themselves. Because, I mean, how many military bases are in California? Like well, I don't a big know chunk of them? There, there are a number of military <laughs> bases in California. But those are American federal bases. Uh, and so I'm not sure that it would be, you know, if tomorrow, for example, they would just all of a sudden owe their allegiance to California. But what you're saying is generally true, at least for California, I can speak to, because California has its own military department, uh, which right. is not the National Guard. I'm talking about a completely separate military department in California. That's not something that's attached to the federal apparatus. And so we have the infrastructure in place for that. Now, it's not highly funded, of course, but the agency exists. And the infrastructure exists for us to fund that infrastructure and then build a California Defense Department that's not connected to the federal government in any way. It's not National Guard that could be nationalized by the President of the United States, and it's not active duty, which is already a federal institution already. And I'm, I'm sure Texas may have something similar to that. But California and Texas, if the, if the Texans do have that, are unique in that way in the rest of the, the, rest of the country is that they have their own military apparatus already in place, uh, California Military Department. And so we could, you know, with the passage of a next budget, for example, increase the military defense spending in California without touching the National Guard, without touching the active duty troops, which would be an issue of contention because they are kind of federally funded and they are federal parts of the federal apparatus. But that brings us to the next point where if we did break up, what would we do with those items? A lot of people talk about, well, how would national divorce yeah. work? One of the things is, is, is settling all those issues. That's like sharing the assets, right? Well, if these military bases are in California, they can remain in California, and the owners of those military bases, if it was the, whatever remained of the United States of America, would 
you know, pay leases for the land that they're on, just like the United States pays leases for the land that they use in Africa and in Europe for their military bases there. And so that would further even subsidize military for California because we would be getting um, lease payments from the American government for the land that they're using to place their military establishments in California. Yeah, and, and that, that's fascinating. Uh, it, that makes me think of a tweet that the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire had a couple weeks ago um, that pissed a lot of people off, where they said, how would New Hampshire be able to afford national defense if it secedes from the Union? Easy. The United States will give us a billion dollars a year for an Iron Dome. Well, I mean, it's true. Though. I mean, in the United States, if it were, if, if a natural divorce led to some situation where there was still some kind of United States of America intact, the corporation of the United States of America intact, then perhaps they would want to, you know, pay X number of dollars to New Hampshire and the different states to put, you know, their Patriot missiles there or their their. Right. Air Force base there. I mean, they have Air Force bases and military bases around the world. Why wouldn't they want them all of a sudden to be in the other states and foreign countries? Yeah, I mean, we pay Ukraine to let us put missile systems in Ukraine in case Russia ever tries something. We pay Canada to let us put uh, ships and Coast Guard stations on the north slope of Canada to monitor the Arctic Ocean. We pay... I don't actually. I don't think we pay anyone in Africa. I think we just set up shop in Africa. Um, yeah, but... We, we, like, pay for the lease, we do lease the land, though. Yeah, I think the there might be the the only base that the United States doesn't pay rent on that they have in a foreign country is Guantanamo Bay, and that's not because the United States isn't sending them the check. It's just Cuba has refused to cash the check for the past fifty years because they yeah. they view it as a coercive lease that they never agreed to. Yeah, which props so. to them for having the ability to <laughs> not check cash that check. Um, yeah. Well, believe it or not, so that's a, it's a funny little transitory story there, but Cuba used to take payment every single year because the original treaty required the United States to pay $1,000 a year for the lease in gold. Mm. And then it was in the early 1900s where the United States said, we're not going to pay you gold anymore. Here's a check. And Cuba says, no, <laughs> we want gold. And then when mm -hmm. Fidel Castro took power, he says, no, we're not taking it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. And it, the interesting part there is Cuba was very much almost a U.S. territory. Mm -hmm. Like if it weren't for that arrangement of putting Guantanamo Bay in Cuba for with an indefinite lease, Cuba very much likely would have ended up like Puerto Rico, an independent, uh, a self-governing territory beholden to D.C., yeah, which is I'm, I'm not familiar with that history so much, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a it's it's a fascinating look at how things shook out at the end of the Spanish American War. Again, American imperialism conquering the Caribbean, um, where Amer the United States military conquered Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, but only kept Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. So th that that's another fascinating one. We, we talk about the military bases. We talk about the federal property, federal resources. Um, what about, like, has there ever been any contact between somebody at CalExit with maybe the independence movement in Puerto Rico? Because they have referendums on a regular basis, and they are not a state. And it's been ruled that if Puerto Rico, since they're not a state, they're a territory, votes to leave the union, votes to leave the United States, they'll be allowed to declare their independence because they're a territory, not a state. Yeah, I think that their status would be more similar to like the Philippines when they you know, separated from the United States, something to that effect. But right. uh, yes, we did, we did meet the uh, delegation from Puerto Rico at a conference on self-determination a couple of years ago. And, like, it blows my mind that there isn't a bigger push for independence somewhere like Puerto Rico. Somewhere that's an island country with its own culture that's completely and entirely distinct from anywhere else in the United States. Um, that it is a self-contained economic unit in and of itself. Uh, it has its own resources. It, has, it could have a thriving tourism industry, or a thriving banking industry if they really wanted it. Uh, but every time they do have a referendum, 
status quo seems to win by a mile, and the people who are in favor yeah. of independence just don't show up. To I, vote. I don't know that uh, even if they had the capacity, and I can't speak to whether they do or not, the capacity to be an independent country that wouldn't be like Haiti. Uh, I think that the people there wouldn't want to lose their automatic U.S. citizenship that they get from just being born there, I guess. And if they became an independent country, they might be thinking, well, it'd be cool, but then we're not U.S. citizens, and then we're stuck on the island because we can't, we can't go to Miami. So. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Another reason that we need to form together, I think that's the one good thing about the European Union is the ability to travel throughout the European Union without any yeah. passports. Mm -hmm. is that they're all independent sovereign states that answer to Berlin. They like to claim they're independent and sovereign states, but Berlin has a stranglehold over the entire European economy and whatever Germany says goes. Um, but people are allowed to cross borders for work. People are allowed to trust cross borders for travel. There is no board. Like if you go to a border checkpoint and a European passport from any European uh, country right on through, no checks, nothing. Um, to me, that's the balkanized North America I want to see. I want to be able to go visit friend in Iowa and just drive through New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania on my way out there and not have to worry about border control. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And a Calix, for example, you know, we talk about the same thing that, you know, we'd still be able to go to Las Vegas. You might just have to take your passport if there's a check on the American <laughs> side. But there's no reason right. why we, you know, we wouldn't allow there to be free travel because this idea of Calix and this idea of national divorce doesn't mean that we're going to have worse relationships afterwards. It's quite the opposite. That's the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to have a better relationship after the divorce. And so uh, you know, that's why we can have these mutual defense agreements. That's why we can have this visa-free travel, continuation of commerce and trade, uh, because we're going to be separate countries that are going to be you know, outside of the dysfunctional household. And so, therefore, we can work cordially and respectfully with one another after we're no longer interfering with each other's domestic affairs. And so Europe works like that. I mean, a lot of people don't think that Europe can be used as an example to point to for many many things. But the European Union works in many respects, and then it does allow the people of those 44 countries, well, not all of them, because they're not all part of the European Union, but of the, of the member states to be able to freely travel, work, and move around uh, within that territory. And so I think that that's very doable in North America. And that's something that we should do in North America. Well, one of the things people ask me often, because I do argue for open borders as a libertarian all the time. And people ask me, how would open borders work? Open borders would never work. And I'll just send them a picture of the border between Belgium and the Netherlands. And the border between Belgium and Netherlands is a checkered paint line on the sidewalk that runs right through the middle of an outdoor dining area at a restaurant. And the restaurant happens to be in the Netherlands and their dining areas in Belgium. Like, that's the border. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's no checkpoint. Yeah, and there's, I mean, and there's, there's some flexibility with that. I mean, for some people yeah. who might want to have a little bit more of a formal border, I mean, the... The fact that, for example, my wife is a Russian citizen, she doesn't have the right to go in some of these countries in Europe as I do, or as my daughter does as uh, a U.S. citizen. And so she needs a Schengen visa for that. So in order to enter the territory, the I guess you'd say I guess the exterior borders of that territory, you know, they have those checkpoints so that we would have to go in there with that Schengen visa. She'd have to have it cleared first, get it first. But then when she's in the territory, then she can move around those uh, those countries. And so, for example, if Mexico and Canada were not a part of this American Union, maybe if you were entering one of these, uh, you know, American states from Mexico or from Canada or from elsewhere, China or something, you might need to present some kind of a document in order to enter the territory, enter the zone, so to speak. Enter the zone, it sounds <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, but then once you're in that territory, then you would be able to freely move around the 49 or 40 or 30 or whatever number of states that were uh you know, created through national divorce. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I think we are high time approaching the point. And unfortunately, I do think it's really unfortunate and sad that what is driving the national divorce talk and what's pushing people towards the national divorce talk isn't so much the realization that DC is bad. There's people like me, there's people like you, there's people like Elliot Axelman from New Hampshire Independence, um, there's people like the Texas guys who recognize that it, what it really is about is state sovereignty and independence from DC's overarching tyranny and governance at a local level that Sacramento is best to govern Sacramento. Dallas is best to govern Dallas. Concord is best to govern Concord. DC needs to get out. But 
a lot of the support that the people have been throwing behind is just due to the division and anger and hatred and negativity surrounding American politics the past eight years. And while it's really unfortunate that that is where a lot of the support is coming from, people being so angry and upset with their philosophical opposition, again, I feel like it's really important to highlight to people that this is just another illustration of why California and New Hampshire should not have the same president. <laughs> because they are so yeah. different culturally and economically, geographically, fundamentally different places and different cultures that they yeah. should not be the same country. Not that we and don't have, want to be friends. They have different needs, too. I mean, that's even aside right. from the differences in culture, they have different needs. And so this one-size-fits-all federal laws that we're passing, you know, those don't work because, and they're difficult to make because they need to apply to states like New Hampshire and California, and it needs to meet their needs somehow. And how do you do that? That's not possible. And so that's why some of the, so much of this federal apparatus that we have is dysfunctional because it's just not possible, I think, on that scale to create a law or create a program that meets the needs of the people in the various different states across the whole continent that have different cultures, different histories, different backgrounds, uh, different demographics, uh, so on and so forth. So. That's why it's better for the people of California to govern the people of California, because the people of California know what they need and they know their own history and their own culture and how to do things in California. And there's no reason to even take it to the next level that the people of New Hampshire should have any say in what's going on in California. So that the two New Hampshire senators shouldn't be able to hold up through filibuster something that needs to be done for California or, or the other way around. California shouldn't be able to California senators shouldn't be able to filibuster something that Texas thinks should be done for the people of Texas. And so that's what the national divorce does. It allows us to get out of each other's way, get out of each other's domestic affairs, get out of each other's hair. We don't have to be at each other's throats anymore. And we don't have to try to force a set of values on another population that doesn't want to have it. And by doing so, we can have a situation where, you know, peace and tranquility, like that word tranquility in the Declaration of Independence can be restored in North America because we're not going to be at each other's throats anymore. And the thing I like to say is that you know, right now in our country, the root of this problem is the fact that we can't have compromise anymore. But the things that we need to compromise on in this day and age are not things that are like, you know, minute details of policy. Like, what's the tax rate going to be? Is it going to be 4% or 5% or 6%? We could compromise on that. You know, if we, could, we could find compromise in that because we're not compromising our values to come to an arrangement. But the things that we need to compromise in this country now would require one side or the other to compromise their core values. And I don't think that we should live in a country that requires us to compromise our value system just to have peace in society. And that's why we need to have a national divorce. I agree 100%. Lewis, it has been absolutely fantastic having you on tonight. I am super excited uh, for Liberty Forum. First weekend in March, everybody. Uh, the New Hampshire yep. Liberty Forum. You can check it out. You can get your tickets at nhlibertyforum.com. Come see yep. uh, Lewis, Yes, California, Hal Exit, New Hampshire Independence, Texas uh, Secession Movement, all in one place for the first time ever in person. It's going to be fascinating. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be helping out running the event. And Lewis, tell everyone where they can learn more and where they can follow you. Yeah, definitely. And I'm looking forward very much to coming back uh, and being in New Hampshire and participating in the forum as well. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, people can go to my website, lewismarinelli.com to read my occasional blog posts. I also have live feeds that are similar to this, where I go off on talks about national divorce a couple times a week and other topics related to the California campaign for governor coming up next uh, month, uh, in the next couple of months, because I'm actually running as a candidate for governor against Gavin Newsom, against the one state, one party rule in California. <laughs> and uh, they can find information about me at lewismarinelli.com or at calexitgovernor.com. So, so lewismarinelli.com or calexitgovernor.com. That'll pop up. You get more information. Keep in touch with Lewis. If you're in New Hampshire, if you're in New England, if you're within a 12-hour drive of New Hampshire in New England, or if you want to fly in and risk TSA and the mask and the blue gloves of freedom that the federal government has forced on you, it's totally worth it. Again, nhlibertyforum.com. Get your tickets now. It's going to be a great, great event, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Lewis, again, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, for Thanks those of you who didn't catch on, 
Lewis is in Moscow. It's a late, late night for him to make this work. So thank you, thank you, thank well, you. I'm in so Moscow for 43, 44 more days, counting the days <laughs> down, and we are out of here. And uh, awesome. coming back home, running for governor, going to change the world. Awesome. And I'm looking forward to watching you do it. But until next time, everybody, be free. Thanks again for tuning in and joining us tonight. Make sure you hit that like button and leave a comment below to let us know your thoughts. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and hit that big red subscribe button on YouTube and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live. If you enjoyed this content, you can join our production team on Patreon by following the link in the description. And don't forget to follow on social media and join our community Discord channel by following the links in the description as well. The best part of all of this is the community that we're building and growing. So go ahead and join us. And thanks once again to our awesome sponsors and patrons for making all of this possible. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So until next time, everybody, be free.